This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Wednesday, November the 1st, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Community Living Ontario has announced the recipients of its 2023 Inspiring Possibilities Awards. Chris Beasley will tell you all about this year's winners. And what can you do at a personal level to help combat climate change? And Kamosi will recommend some lifestyle tips for making greener choices. I got a little bit of a spoiler alert on that segment. Turns out my use of coffee pods, even though they're compostable, is a big problem. So Ann Camosi is coming right at your boy in about uh, 20 minutes or, sh- or so. But the show begins with the top story of the day. And as it's been for a huge chunk of this year, it's about your money and the economy. Federal, provincial and territorial finance ministers will be meeting later this week to discuss the Canada Pension Plan, specifically Alberta's interest in withdrawing from it. Federal Finance Minister Krisha Freeland already has some insight from various business entities in the province. The Calgary Chamber of Commerce has said that altering Alberta's pension system could compromise labour mobility, stability for businesses and consumers, and investor confidence. The Alberta Federation of Labour has said that the proposed move to a provincial pension plan would be, quote, truly scary for anyone contemplating a safe and stable retirement. Another economic story to monitor today, the U.S. Federal Reserve is expected to make its latest interest rate announcement That one typically comes much later in the day. You know, Canada, 10 a.m. Eastern time, that's when it comes out. The United States, they have a big, long meeting, and you never quite know when they're going to make that announcement. So I doubt that's going to happen during the course of the show. But if something notable happens, I'll let you know. If not, we'll do a little bit of analysis together tomorrow. Switching over to immigration, the federal government has released a report on ways to improve the immigration system. Immigration Minister Mark Miller explains that making the process easier is a key priority. We're also making it easier for applicants to find information they need and make our website more user-friendly. It's been a challenge. For example, we have a new improved client experience platform to provide a better online experience and simpler access for those seeking to use our programs to visit, immigrate, work, study in Canada, become a Canadian and get a passport, all with the effort in bringing this system into the 21st century finally. The report also proposes creating a chief international talent officer to better align immigration programs and pathways with the labour market. Miller says a lot of stakeholders think the current system is broken. If we've heard anything from Canadians over the past few months from the extensive surveys that are being done, um, Canadians aren't close to immigration, but they want people like me, they want provinces, they want cities to do a better job in coordinating Uh, the arrival of immigrants, even temporary workers, uh, and that's something that is a challenge for all levels of government. 
And looking south of the border, new data from the Environmental Protection Agency shows that America has a food waste problem. Lisa Dwyer takes a closer look. A pair of recent reports from the Environmental Protection Agency show striking numbers on America's problem with food waste. One-third of the food produced in the United States is never eaten, and 58% of planet-warming methane emitted from U.S. landfills comes from decomposing food. Tackling food waste is a daunting challenge that the U.S. has taken on before. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the EPA set a goal of cutting food waste in half by 2030. But the country has made little progress. Some say that reducing food waste requires a big psychological change and lifestyle shift from individuals no matter what. Researchers say households are responsible for at least 40% of food waste in the U.S. I'm Lisa Dwyer. That last stat really jumped out to me in Lisa's report. 40% of food waste in the United States is coming from households. Yet two lines earlier, there's this whole rigmarole about, oh, it's up to you to make choices as an individual. But if 60% of the food waste is occurring elsewhere, then why does that onus strictly shift to the individual? That's going to be a theme you'll find in the first hour of the show today, whether it be that quick conversation, whether it be the daily poll that you'll get in just a moment, or Ann Kamosi's conversation about reducing your own green footprint, your own carbon footprint. I'm not saying that you and I are not responsible for our own actions, that this is the world we live in. We must be responsible for the things that we do. But... Every now and then you have to zoom out and say, well, if humans as individuals are 40% of the problem, who's the other 60%? And what's their responsibility? Just a little food for thought on a Wednesday morning. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Tuesday, it was Halloween, so you were asked a Halloween-related question have you already started eating your Halloween candy? Have you already started eating your Halloween candy? Uh, the options were yes or no. I'm just looking at the screen here. I 71% of you said yes, and 29% of you said no. A couple of uh, pretty great responses here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Karen writes in, no comment but I'm on my way to the store now to buy candy again. Marie writes in, yes, and I have the belly to prove it, lol. Marie, I'm right there with you. Kate chimes in, I can't eat candy because of my dental work, but maybe I'll have a Halloween cake. I like where Kate's thinking. And Anastasia writes in, I buy an extra box of mini Nestle chocolate bars just for us to eat. Especially love the coffee crisp. Like I told you yesterday, uh, there was a Dave Brown tax on the candy that I gave to the lobby in my building to give out to the kids. And the coffee crisps mysteriously fell out of that Nestle box. And Kara writes in, I was supposed to save it for Halloween? With a series of question marks and exclamation marks. Uh, you know, candy is candy, and Halloween is uh, just a day. Uh, there's 364 days to also indulge in some sweet, sugary goodness. Today's Daily Poll, a little bit more serious, and it's going to relate to a few of these conversations that I just had and that you're going to have later in the show. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, it's all about recycling policies and local recycling policies. Do you find all the different local recycling policies confusing? Yes 
or no. Once again, I'm not saying that you or I are not responsible for our own actions, but it can get a little bit wild. I've told you before that I grew up in Montreal, and it used to be you just shoved everything in one bin, and they took it away, and they sorted it themselves. And then I moved to Ottawa, and then there was a black bin, and a blue bin, and a green bin, and then there was the garbage as well. So there were four bins on the side of the house. Okay, so now I'm separating paper, plastic, compost, and garbage. Okay, I can handle that. Not too, not too big a problem. And then I moved to Toronto, and all the rules are different about what goes in what bin and what's allowed and what's not allowed, and you can do this and you can do that. To a certain degree, you need a master's degree or a PhD to understand what you can or can't recycle and which bin that it goes in. And I wonder at what point that becomes self-defeating. Not that I'm trying to make you all cynics this morning, Thankfully, when it comes to academics, there are plenty of people to share their thoughts on this show. Let's start with Laura Bain out there in Halifax. Laura, I don't know what the recycling policies are like out there in the HRM, but do you find them confusing? Well, you know, if I'm forced into a binary on this, which you know I love, you're, Dave, you're, you're not think... you're, you're not all the way forced into a binary here. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the binary is a structure. I'm going to have to say no, but, you know, a little bit. I can understand the confusion. So we separate out at least five different things here in Halifax, but we've been doing it for such a long time. I feel like we were sort of ahead of the game. We had compost, I think, about 20 years ago here in Halifax, and it definitely was an adjustment, but it's just part of the routine now. Now, it may help that I live in an apartment building that has bins all clearly labeled with what can go in them and what can't. Mm. I do see the confusion sometimes when people are have just recently moved here or are visiting. But at the same time, to be fair, I feel like the information is readily available on the city's website. So maybe it's a little bit of an, an excuse to say it's confusing. Now, that being said, if I can have one more thought on it, Please. I do think it would be helpful for it to be consistent across the country. So I think that's really what I'm trying to drive at here, Laura, is that it's not once you get settled somewhere that it's confusing. It's that I've lived in three different places in the last 15 years, and it's all different, right? Like, there's, there's no consistency across the board on what goes where, let alone you end up in a different city for business travel or for vacation, and their policy is all different, let alone the uniformity of actual public recycling containers that are different from neighborhood to neighborhood and with very confusing pictograms of what goes in where. So I, I definitely accept your point. that they don't, they don't make the research impossible here, but there should be a point where if recycling is an effective policy, what is the best practice? And let's try to get everybody on the same page, although, uh, you know, federalism in Canada uh, doesn't always <laughs> allow for that. Let's bring in Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you're a little more Southern Ontario-based, but you do trot around Southern Ontario for your, own, ac for your own academic <laughs> studies, but you're also a smart cookie. Do you find well, the different you, local recycling policies confusing? Yes. Uh, specifically, I find it confusing what you can recycle. So, you know, certainly in the regions that I'm in, the black containers, the takeout containers, the bottom, the black part, you can't recycle. Um, but the lids, you can. Uh, the other thing is coffee cups. Now, there's a wax lining in those that I didn't know about till recently. So again, those you can't, but the lids you can. So for me, I, I find it really hard to know, like, can I actually recycle this? And I don't want to throw something in recycling 
that isn't recyclable because that's mm -hmm. not so bad. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to throw something in the garbage that's recyclable either. And I think Laura, Laura hit on a point I want to bring up, which is the labeling of the bins. So at the institution where I go, we'll just leave it there. Um, the, the bins are labeled in print, but there's no way for somebody who doesn't read print to know is this compost or recycling. Um, and that that's really confusing as well. And there's not sort of a consistent lineup. Like if you knew that the, the paper was first and then the garbage, et cetera. So I find that confusing. And then I think, you know, the other thing that's been really helpful is that list on the city of Toronto website about like, what can you recycle and what can't you recycle? Mm. And, you know, certainly even just to figure out is the a recycling day or a garbage day I don't have to worry about because I'm in an apartment but yeah I think it's the what can you recycle that really throws me for a loop I like that you mentioned the difficulty in identifying what can go in where and even if I'm they not put stick my nose and, in the bins that's gross <laughs> yeah well no, but, that, but that's the point right like even if they put braille on there I don't want to be like I don't want to be groping around at the edge of garbage cans to so figure what out we what's need is unified bins that are different shapes for the different contents so, so that's one thing there's also a student who used to be a grad student in canada she's now studying in england she's part of the blind and low vision community her name's hillary scanlon she developed something that was actually a mat that you would put out in front of your uh, recycling Ooh. garbage and compost bins that would have a tactile marker on the floor of what's what so again maybe putting your feet on something near the garbage yeah okay i like isn't... that better than my bin suggestion <laughs> no 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 your bin suggestion <laughs> is good too. I think there can be a collaboration across the board for a best practice right. here. Entrepreneurship. Hey, I see a theme. The, the entrepreneur, that seems to be the theme of the last couple of weeks on the show. Elizabeth, <laughs> Laura, this isn't to say this is the end of this conversation. It's going to continue throughout the show. I sense it's going to be a common thread, but for now, let's put it to bed. But you can still get involved in Listener Land and the Viewer Vortex at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you find all the different local recycling policies to be confusing? Yes or no? Like Laura said, it's a little unfair that I'm forcing you into a binary, but you can do more than just vote. You can get involved in the comments section. You can also send emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Community Living Ontario has announced the recipients of the 2023 Inspiring Possibilities Awards. Chris Beasley tells you all about this year's winners and plenty of other stuff going on around Community Living Ontario. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and now available to stream live audio at amiplus.ca. So truly, it's back to the viewer vortex and listener land. Talk to you in two minutes. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Community Living Ontario has announced the recipients of the 2023 Inspiring Possibilities Awards. The awards were handed out at a gala dinner as part of Community Living's Inspiring Possibilities 
conference. Chris Beasley is the CEO of Community Living Ontario, and Chris is right next to me in Studio 7 at AMI headquarters. Hey, good morning, Chris. Thank you for making the time. Morning, Dave. Great to be here. So, Chris, let's start with the conference itself. What were your takeaways from this year's conference? Oh gosh, it w well, first of all, it was so great to be together with everyone in one place at one time, you know, post pandemic and not sort of some virtual, some in person. It was, so just the feeling of, of being together and celebrating each other and the feeling of putting the community in community living uh, was was really fantastic. And then there's there's the the takeaways from our, you know, we have our breakout sessions during our conference and so you're, there's an educational learning component. Uh, but really for me, it's just the 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 feeling of of collaboration and mm. community that you get from from that event. There's really something about in-person. I presented at a conference for Fighting Blindness Canada a couple of weeks ago, and just being in the room, it's almost like it's it's almost like it's more casual, right? You're still relaying yeah. all the same information you would have had at a webinar, but it just feels more casual and personal. And and you get you get a vibe from different places and different events. And this one is really unique, at least in Ontario, where we're we're getting people with that lived experience, people who have intellectual disabilities, along with family members, board members, professionals, all coming together uh, just to, to be together, to learn together, to celebrate together. It's awesome. How do you strike the balance between the educational component, the advocacy component, and then just the fun components? Well, you know, you got to kind of go with the flow sometimes. I mean, there's a certain structure to the whole thing, yeah, right? But there's there's lots of opportunity to, you know, we build in that, that networking time, that social time, and the celebration time. Yeah, speaking of the celebration, there was the gala dinner where the Inspiring Possibility Awards were handed out. Before you jump into some of the individual recipients, what's the general selection criteria that the committee is utilizing to pick the winners? Well, we're really looking at... Uh, inclusion as our as our overarching theme right so what is going on what are people thinking about what are they doing that moves people towards what we would call authentic inclu inclusion the, mm. the, the things that just allow people to have a typical life what are the supports that people are looking at needing and accessing that just allow people to have a typical life in the community to not only be present and participate but actually contribute to their communities and so that's where you know that's sort of our overarching theme and then we you know as the as the awards talk about it's inspiring possibilities mm. in others real and tangible right real and tangible practical things that build inclusion and build community absolutely yeah okay well let's break a couple of these awards down piece by piece joseph lambert received the jason ray award why was he an excellent candidate to receive this award oh jo so joseph is you know awesome guy uh with with you know, an incredible lived experience. Actually, he'd be great on this show sometime uh, because you know he he had uh, lived years in an institution. So people used to be almost automatically institutionalized if they were identified as having an intellectual disability. And and rather than take that experience and you know and the trauma he experienced and and hold that within him, he's decided to contribute to to his community by helping train uh, others who are support workers in. Uh, how they can best support people who have an intellectual disability. So he's taken the negative and he's acting mm. as a mentor and a teacher to to help people who who provide those supports to do the best they can and have an understanding and an empathy to, for the for the people that they're working with. 
Speaking of institutions, Barry Cohen received an award for their documentary, Unloved, Heronia's Forgotten Children. Barry actually came on the show to talk a little bit about the making of the documentary and the response they received from putting it out there. And, and, and I, I watched it. It was a powerful, powerful documentary. Yeah. Barry ended up receiving the Inclusive Media Award. I think there's probably some self-evidence to, uh, to this answer, but how was her work received? and why did she end up receiving the award? Well, I think the work was received as, as you said, it was, as the powerful documentary that it was. And it was received with um, uh, humility, with tears, with uh, concern, with empathy, with, but, but I think, again, inspiring possibilities. Let's, let's understand our past so that we can chart our way forward. And mm -hmm. I think, really, that's one of the central messages that, that Barry's film portrays. And so we just wanted to recognize the, the, the importance of that work, of her commitment and her passion that's evident in the, in the final product, and, and that it's, it's going to be a, a, a resource and a tool, again, for us to understand our past so that we don't repeat it yeah. and we can learn from it and move forward together. It, it documented the viewpoint of survivors so powerfully. And, and it provided a real document of the problematic history that, that isn't even the distant past, right? It wasn't the distant history. This was exactly. contemporary history that Barry documented, but I think especially because it came through the viewpoints and voices of survivors. You hear the voices of people. You can't get better than that. Right? Yeah, you really yeah. can't. And that, again, goes back to this idea of giving people a platform and building, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. So going a little bit further here, Everyday Friends were the recipient of the Changemaker Award. What was their role in the community that ended up get garnering the, this honor? Well, I, I think for, for Everyday Friends, it was really about recognizing the value of friendship, the value of coming together, uh, and, and even over the pandemic, how they were able to pivot to that online piece to say, and it wasn't to say that you know, people with intellectual disabilities should only have friends who also have intellectual disabilities. Mm. That's not the point. The point was to provide a, a social opportunity, to provide some camaraderie, so that you can, you know, go out and live your best life. But it's also nice once in a while to to come together with people who have similar experiences. It's like I, I have a friend who is diabetic. And she never really knew, for her whole life, she's been diabetic, and she never really knew people, other people with diabetes, or had that conversation. And when she was able to connect, facilitated through a group to connect on that basis, it was amazing. It didn't mean that she wanted to live her whole life with other people who mm -hmm. have diabetes, mm -hmm. but just to have a, a, a opportunity for a regular connection to commiserate, to share the lived experience, and maybe some pro tips for each other, right? That's, that's a great opportunity. So Everyday Friends provides that kind of opportunity to be together. One more person to shout out here, and that's Lisa McNee Baker, who was awarded with the Innovation and Accessibility Award. What did Lisa do to earn this honor? So Lisa, as the executive director uh, at one of our local community livings in Ajax, Pickering, uh, Whitby, um, saw that it's important for the people she supported to be able to age in place. In other words, not to be um, put into another institution where they might have come from in the first place, but to go to another, like a long-term care facility, that the people that they commit to supporting is a lifelong commitment. Mm. And so part of that commitment is to help uh, put the supports and infrastructure in place to allow people to age with dignity where they're comfortable in the place that they live.
Chris, the work that you do at CLO goes well beyond a conference or one awards gala. It's a 24-7, 365 endeavor. What are the points of contact for folks to learn more, follow along, maybe even get involved with Community Living Ontario? Sure. Well, we, we have uh, 117 local associations wow. for community living across the province, and we're part of a national federation called Inclusion Canada. So we're known by either community living or inclusion province or territory, um, you, can, you can Google us, you can go to communitylivingontario.ca, you can Google you know, uh, uh, Inspiring Possibilities Awards, we're on all the social platforms, so we're out there, we, we want to connect, we want to bring people together, and so absolutely we'd love to hear from people. Oh yeah, absolutely folks, if you can, go out there, get involved, offer your support, whether it be in Ontario or across the country as well. Chris, before I say goodbye to you, you were sitting here in Studio 7 right next to me as I was engaging in the daily poll with Elizabeth and Laura, you are also Toronto-based, Southern Ontario-based, uh-huh. at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you find local recycling policies and all the different local recycling policies to be confusing? Absolutely confusing. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's 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 a hodgepodge. And then when you see the amount of of recycling that actually gets properly processed you know i think the, the yeah, it's an education component but it's also a just it's it's kind of demotivating when you think about you you do you follow all the rules and then you hear about some of the stats that say well only nine percent is actually being properly recycled and you go Oof, really yeah yeah it really creates some uh, deep cynicism that's okay yeah. though because when there's cynicism there's an opportunity to build optimism so hopefully Absolutely. we get a chance to do that okay <laughs> chris great to have you join us in studio today thank you so much have a lovely day keep up the great work Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. That's Chris Beasley, the CEO of Community Living Ontario. Coming up after the break, this topic relates to the Daily Poll. What can you do at a personal level to help combat climate change? And Kamosi recommends some lifestyle tips for making greener choices. Here you go. A little bit of optimism coming up after the break. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Reducing emissions and greenhouse gases has become one of the biggest goals in combating climate change. Government and large companies quantify their green contributions by cap-and-trade agreements and carbon offsetting. But how can you gauge what you do on a personal level. Disability rights activist Anne Kamosi wants to explore this idea, and so do I. Good morning, Anne. Great to chat with you once again. <laughs> yeah, nice to be here, Dave. It's perfect uh, introduction to this topic, listening to Chris talk about the problems with recycling, and I think there's a lot more we can do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat. That There's no such thing as a silver bullet, or in this case, I suppose, a green bullet to any, uh, any kind of problem in the world. But before you can necessarily address a problem, you have to identify where you're at. So what tools are available for an individual to actually measure their carbon footprint? Well, there's a lot of carbon calculators online. 
And um, the only concern I have about those, there's, there's many and they're all different and they're all very good. They all measure the same things, but I'm not sure how good some of those are for screen readers. If you can't read the carbon calculators, just simply Google, what can I personally do? Mm. And you'll see, you'll see a list of actions and you'll see a list of areas. All the carbon calculators look at the same areas and they give you your carbon footprint. I took mine. I was really surprised because I don't drive a car. I don't own a house. I don't fly in airplanes. And yet my carbon footprint was still bigger. Like we in North America, we use, we emit twice as much carbon dioxide as Europeans, five times as much as Asians, and 13 times more than people in Africa. Mm. And although it's, although it's cold and it's hot, and we need to use more probably power for those things, not 13 times more. Yeah. So I think. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was, I was, I was, no, just, I was just affirming. No. I was affirming. I was, I was on board with you. Yeah. No. No. I wasn't really. I was kind of finished that thought. It's just that the carbon calculators really tell you, and and they actually will point out things in asking the questions. What are the areas that you can do better at? And and that was really helpful for me when I took it. As someone looks internally, what are some of the key lifestyle areas that really need to be analyzed if you're going to authentically lower your carbon footprint? Well, transportation is key. You know, how do you get around? Um, those of us with disabilities, we sometimes don't have choices in those areas, and that may be an area where some of us have lower footprints because we do tend to use transit, like I only use transit to get around. But how, you, what, how much you fly, for example, then food, like what do you eat? Mm. What kinds of food do you eat? Uh, for example, when I was growing up, there were no kiwis. <laughs> you know, they came from far away, and that, that was just not part of it. But now we go into superstore, and there's things from New Zealand, from all over the world. I personally try and shop locally. You know, we'll talk about the steps later, but food is really important. Um, clothing. How much clothing do you own? Do you upcycle? Do you buy used clothing? You know, do you buy clothing and throw it away? We all probably have too much clothing. Um, heating, cooling, and lighting. Um, yeah, there's the clothing. Like, you know, the, the dumps are full of clothing. And mm. we, all, we all really have to look at that part of our lives. Um, how we heat our homes, how we um, cool our homes, how we light our homes. Like LED is a lot better than the previous kinds of hiding. So it's, it's like what we purchase, how we purchase it, and how we move around and how we live our lives, much more than just recycling. Recycling is important, but it's often difficult for people with disabilities. And as pointed out by Chris and you at your previous conversation, uh, it, there's a hodgepodge of regulation and not all of it gets to the landfill. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it's a, just a small thing that we can do. I read between the lines there, Anne, that there's some habits around disposability of, of the choices that we make, right? That, for example, you talked about clothing, certainly trying to buy clothing that is sustainably made, but also durable, and also not necessarily having 15 or 20 t-shirts, but having eight or 10 t-shirts. And, and I'm sure if anybody went into their closet right now, they would say, oh my gosh, there are the 
14 dress shirts in here and I might wear a dress shirt uh, twice or three times a month. So it's so it's about sort of fighting that that impulse, that buying impulse to sort of buy extra when not necessary. Or if I go into my hoodie closet, there's 14 hoodies, but I wear the same hoodie every day. Exactly. And and the thing is, you know, again, when I was growing up, I'm dating myself. Every piece of clothing that I bought, even when I even when my kids were young in the 80s was made in Canada. But that's not the case anymore. And so um, buying durable clothing, if you are going to buy new clothing is key. But I want to talk to you, Dave, about your coffee pods. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Last time you mentioned you were aware of the fact that this probably wasn't the most sustainable choice, but it was hard to change because of the convenience mm-hmm. of it. But, all, mm-hmm. but, but, also, but also how easy it probably was for you to use because most coffee machines have a touch tab, inter, a touch interface that you can't possibly read. So... Um, one of the things we have to look at is take taking your coffee pods for an example. A- am I right that that's why you keep using it because of the interface of using it and the convenience? You you hit it almost right perfectly across the board. I typically am using compostable coffee pods because number one, I I live alone. So the idea of making yep. a single cup of coffee almost seems less wasteful to my mind as, as a generalized concept. Number two, it's very convenient. I love the idea of convenience. Number three, yep. from an accessibility point of view, there's basically one button on my machine that I need to know how to use. So I put the pot in, I click it down, I press the one button, and bada bing, bada boom, I've got coffee 30 seconds later. Yeah, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this as an example is it's a perfect example of how people with disabilities sometimes have to use things that aren't as environmentally friendly as other choices because things are not accessible to us or we have special needs. For example, plastic straws were a big issue. Mm-hmm. For this, all, all the same reasons, they, plastic, there wasn't really a good sustainable alternative and yet people who weren't disabled were saying things like oh come on just use a bamboo straw or whatever but it's not that simple so i think what the coffee pod thing points out to us changing our behavior acting more for the environment requires us to examine why we're doing something and so you know okay can you find a different coffee pot that's easier to use that might be good for single-use coffee and for a person who lives alone. So that's the first thing, is to research whether or not there might be something better, and then try it out. You know, I would, I've frequently bought something and said, I want to try it out, and I want to be able to bring it back if it doesn't work. And most Mm. places, like, you know, will let you do that, especially with an appliance. It's interesting, in in Asia, they were training low-vision people to become baristas, and the, only, and, the, and the simple thing they did was put an interface, a special touch interface over the coffee machine. And soon these uh, low vision baristas could make every kind of coffee they wanted. So that's an example of how, you know, people with disabilities have, have to think things through. Mm. And it, it, it kind of gives you an opportunity, Dave, to do something that is good for the environment, which is optimistic and makes us feel good is to write the coffee maker and say, these are the reasons why I can't use your coffee maker. 
And mm. I, I want I want to make better choices for the environment, but you're not making a coffee maker that I can use. So we can use our voices as people with disabilities to advocate for better choices for ourselves. And if you feel after you've done all the analysis that the coffee pods are still the best choice, and get rid of some of your hoodies and don't buy as many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <you> know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to get rid of any, but at this point, I just don't need to buy any more. I, I, I've, well, I've got a good supply. There you go. So it's like challenge yourself in another area of environmental behavior and say, well, yeah, I, I feel that the coffee pods are just a choice I have to keep. Well, I'm not going to buy any more kiwis. Whatever. Oh, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, I don't yeah. like, I don't like okay. kiwis. That's good. That's perfect. Okay. That's, a win. that's a win right there for me, Anne. If I don't have to eat kiwis, that's good. <laughs> uh, and and you, mentioned, you mentioned before you had maybe a little bit of a methodology, a, a sort of some steps to follow here. I'm not sure if that kind of cannibalizes your last answer, but, but no. dive, a little, dive a little deeper into that. Well, there's something uh, called adoption and diffusion of new of new behaviors and ideas. And I studied this when I was doing my master's degree because I was interested in environmental behavior and how adults change. I have a master's in adult education. And so the theory says that we go through five steps. So we first become aware of the new idea. Okay, aware of the new idea, try out a different coffee machine or write the, you know, manufacturer. Well, then we sort of become interested in trying it out. We might call some friends and say, hey, how did that work for you? Then we evaluate whether or not it's possible. And then we try it. And if and then we evaluate it. And and we if you tell yourself that you're going through that process, and that's what people go through when they're when they're actually trying something new. Whether you know it or not, you're subconsciously going through those steps. And if the first time you try it, it doesn't work, a lot of us will give it up. But you have to, I think with environmental behavior, you have to force yourself a little bit to say, I'm really going to try this idea out. And, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to reach out to somebody and find out if there's a different way to do it. It's not that complex, but it's, it is the way our brain works. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting. One last question here before I end up uh, asking you the daily poll, because I do want to get your thoughts on the daily poll yeah, question okay. as well. It's circling back to where the conversation started, resources and understanding. What do you recommend in regards to people learning more and gleaning some ideas about making greener choices? Yeah, well, I think I gave the production team some websites. I mean, the Gr Greenpeace has a good website. David Suzuki has a good website. The UN has a good website. You can go online and say, how do I make better green choices? Mm. How do I become, how do I live more sustainably? And you'll come up with a list of ideas. I could list them all here, but that would take too much time. <laughs> just, just think about those areas, transportation, food, clothing, heating and lighting and cooling, and just generally how we live recycling and waste. I, I put that one on the lowest of the totem pole. I think it's more about our choices when we buy things and how we live in our environment. Mm. And this is fantastic. I like walking away a little bit optimistically about a topic that can sometimes Good. be a little bit depressing. But before yeah. I say goodbye to you, I do want to ask you the daily poll because this came out of this topic. So it's at Accessible right. Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you find all the different local recycling policies to be confusing? It's a yes or no question, but obviously there's room for nuance here in between. 
Well, absolutely, yes. I live in Nova Scotia, and I happen to receive a different environment today. I'm not at home. I'm in Halifax, and it has different rules than where I live in Antigonish. That's ridiculous. Not only is it different, it's very confusing for people, and it's very difficult for a lot of us to do that separation. So policy has to change. Education has to change. And we have to be in the driver's seat to tell ourselves that we want to make those choices and we want to push people to give us clear ideas on how to do that. Mm. Walking in lockstep. I like that one. And thank you for this. Uh, Best of luck with your day in Halifax. Hope it's a productive one. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks a lot, Dave. It's always a pleasure to be here. I'll I'll look forward to hearing about your coffee pot. <laughs> I'll report back to you. That's Anne Camozzi. Okay. <laughs> That's Anne Camozzi, a disability rights activist and artist in Nova Scotia. You can follow Anne's work at annecamozzi.com. A N N E C A M O Z Z I dot com. Nkamozi.com. See how I said Z and not Z? I once got in trouble when I was working at CBC Radio for saying Z instead of Z. And somebody got into my office later that day. Dave, at the National Broadcaster, we say Z and not Z. Coming up in 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller will tell you all about snow in the Montreal area. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index eked out a tiny gain yesterday after an unsurprisingly flat showing in GDP for August. U.S. markets rose ahead of the American Central Bank's latest decision coming today on interest rates. Toronto's TSX index added 16 points to close at 18,873. New York's Dow Jones average gained 123 points and the Nasdaq rose 61. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 742 points or 2.4% after the Bank of Japan held back from any major changes to its near-zero interest rate policy. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.01 cents U.S. And a B.C. helicopter airline company has announced the purchase of Canada's first electric vertical takeoff aircraft. Helijet International says the aircraft built by Vermont-based Beta Technologies will allow quicker, quieter and more efficient landings and takeoffs from hospitals and other emergency zones. From the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to Elizabeth Moeller for the weather report. Elizabeth, there's a bit of a weather oddity occurring in my old hometown of Montreal, Quebec. This one did catch my attention, Dave. I thought of you. You know, typically in the fall, we psych ourselves up for temperatures that are for you know cooling down in the first frost of the year well before snow but this year yes a rare event led to the exact opposite at first in over 77 years montreal recorded their first measurable snowfall before dipping below that freezing mark and this is something that's happened only one other time in history believe it or not so to have a first snowfall it is necessary to have a system to bring in moisture and cold temperatures snowflakes require below freezing temperatures in the atmosphere in order to develop but they can accumulate on the ground that is above zero degrees celsius and this above freezing layer must be very shallow and close to the ground so that the snowflakes do not have time to melt fully instead the wet the result is wet 
and heavy and thick snow, which none of us love. And on October 30th, Montreal measured two centimeters of snow while staying no colder than zero degrees. But the next day, they did have some frost after that initial snowfall. Elizabeth, thank you for this. I know uh, plenty of people in Montreal were a little bit bummed out about that snow, but uh, tis the season, that's how it goes. Speaking of tis the season, the gift-giving season is around the corner. Don't worry, community reporter Derek Lackey, he'll tell you about the Signature's handmade market in Winnipeg. So there you go. You can uh, buy some handmade stuff instead of that, you know, mass-produced nonsense some of the big retailers. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Halloween was less than 12 hours ago. People were trick-or-treating, and already the conversation around gift-giving season and the holiday season has begun. So I stemmed the tide of Halloween talk for six weeks. Now I need to stem the tide of holiday talk for seven weeks. But holiday markets are popping up to help you do some of your shopping, and handmade goods are always an interesting option. Winnipeg community reporter Derek Lackey has some info about the Signature's handmade market in his neck of the woods. Hey, good morning, Derek. Morning, Dave. How are you? I am excellent. Derek, why did you want to put the spotlight on the Signature's handmade market? You know what, this is uh, actually a, a craft show that I tend to visit every year with my wife just because of the unique and beautiful pieces um, that uh, the different artisans and vendors and artists are bringing, um, you know, out to this market from coast to coast uh, that are here and just to see the ideas and the artistry that goes into these pieces and knowing that they're handmade and the, uh, you know, the durability of, of some of these things you can't beat it when it comes compared to that, you know, mass produced, um, you know, stuff you buy in the store. So there are some really beautiful and unique items that we've picked up over the years that are still to this day, you know, hold true on their, on their beauty and the artistry of it. Derek, you used to work in the trades. I'm curious how much of that ends up translating into some fascination with what I would call artisan tradespeople. It's it's very it's very uh, transferable and it's very interesting seeing um, some of the pieces that people have made even using um, you know copper pipes which I I would have worked with uh, quite often or you know you know various other items everything from shotgun shells turning them into Christmas lights for your average favorite hunter to you know little copper figurines made from fine micro copper tubing that we would use for air conditioner units and and things like that so it's really beautiful kind of picking up some of these pieces and especially you know me you know living 30 years sighted I can identify quite a few of them and just see what it is people have gone and, and turned around and taken to use them for and it's kind of really it's intri- it's intriguing and it's kind of beautiful in a sense 
The market is taking place from November the 23rd to the 26th at the RBC Convention Center in Winnipeg. What are some of the needs to know before somebody uh, plans their visit? Well, the biggest need to know is just which day you want to go. Um, you know, being a free market, you can head on down. There's no charge to get in. Um, the RBC Convention Center is very accessible, has lots of assistance throughout the building all the time. Doesn't matter what shows you're attending, if it's World of Wheels or the tattoo conventions, everything has tons of assistance there. So you're really in good hands when you're heading down there. Uh, busing is quite accessible around there as well. So you're definitely in good hands heading down there. And as long as you have your routes planned to get there and home, you're definitely set to go. Signatures.ca slash Winnipeg, signatures.ca slash Winnipeg to learn more. Derek, maybe uh, buying arts and crafts isn't the way to go around the holiday season. Maybe a little bit of Disney is bringing joy to your life. So there's a show going on. It's a Disney on ice show into the magic is coming through the Winnipeg area. So uh, which Disney characters are going to be included this year for into the magic? So this year into the magic, they're also celebrating a hundred years of Disney. Wow. Um, I know uh, I've, I've watched a couple of the Disney shorts and um, recently there was one on where they actually talked about the hundred years of Disney and they, they celebrated all the different characters involved in uh, one giant photo in this little video. So it was quite interesting listening to it because I could identify quite a few of them. Um, but this year, you know, you're going to have your new characters like from Frozen. You're going to have Anna and Elsa there with their Magic Kingdom. You're going to have uh, Coco uh, in there singing along, Moana, uh, Rapunzel, a lot of the new characters oh, as man. well as a lot of our old characters. So. <laughs> uh, I was, I was going to ask, Derek, uh, for, for old guys like you and me, we might think about The Lion King or Aladdin, maybe The Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast. But uh, I guess based on your son's age that maybe you're getting hit up with a lot of this newer disney stuff uh you know what it's it's actually it's quite funny because he's really kind of adverse to watching disney movies like we we really struggle to try and get things on for him and and try and get him to watch them and he's his answer to everything it's no i don't like that i don't want to and then we end up kind of almost having a force it and like oh like look this is just coming on we're gonna watch it and then he gets he gets caught up in it and he loves it. But, uh, you know, his one of his favorites, as, as well as my all-time favorite, is uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, a little bit of the Tim Burton feel. Yeah, you know what? And recently I got him into watching those. So we watched The Corpse Bride. We've watched Frank and Weenie. We've watched, um, the, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, you know, James and the Giant Peach. A lot of the Tim Burton stuff. We got him into Edward Scissorhands. Okay. We recently watched we watched the Goonies. We've done Gremlins. We're getting a lot of the 80s stuff out that we kind of grew up with. And <laughs> you know what? He's he's loving the live action stuff and, uh, you know, the things that we grew up with. So I'm, I'm really excited to eventually pull out my all-time, you know, uh, Masters of the Universe collection of... Uh, he-Man and uh, Masters of the Universe. So let's see what it likes of those ones back in the 80s. So. Oh, man, He-Man and Skeletor. Now you're really talking. Now you're really talking my language, Derek. Uh, Derek, back to Disney on Ice before we uh, wander too far down the road of the macabre. What are some of the accessibility considerations that, that, that need to be top of mind? 
You know, here with the Canada Life Centre, uh, again, it's very much like the RBC Convention Centre. There are tons of volunteers and staff at the Canada Life Centre. Bathrooms are very accessible and there's lots and lots of them. There are always assistants there by all the stairwells to help you, guide you to a seat, which they will take you directly to your seat. So you can always get help there. Lots of food available, and as well, being that the entrance for Canada Life Centre, one of the main ones is right on Portage Avenue, you can kind of get right there whether you're taking a bus or jumping in a cab. Everything is very accessible, so really it's just a matter of buying your tickets, getting your night ready, and heading down there with the family for a good time. Disneyonice.com, November 23rd to the 26th at the Canada Life Centre. Tickets starting at 35 bucks. Derek, thank you for this. Have a great month. You too. Thanks, Dave. That's Derek Lackey, community reporter in Winnipeg, Manitoba. In 60 seconds, Laura Bain has some news to share out of the music world and the entertainment report. But first, Apple is showing off an upgraded line of computers. Mike Dubusky is talking chips in Tech Trends. 9 to 5 Max, Zach Hall says it's been a few years since Apple transitioned away from using Intel processors to its own internally developed M-series chips. It really proved beneficial on notebooks. So the MacBook Air and MacBook Pro have tremendous battery life because Apple is able to control everything about the chip and how it works. This week, the company's latest chip, the M3, debuted on the MacBook Pro. Any gain year over year is, is not as big as the first jump from Intel to Apple silicon in the first place but it's gradually getting better though the m3 also shows up in the new imac desktop which apple says is two times faster though battery life is less of a concern on the desktop side it doesn't really matter for battery life because it's plugged in anyway with tech trends i'm mike debusky abc news thank you very much mike laura bain it seems appropriate that your entertainment report follows a community report out of winnipeg because there's a legal battle brewing from a couple famous winnipeg musicians yeah that's right although the lawsuit was filed in los angeles so. <laughs> okay <laughs> the uh, winnipeg Randy- the winnipeg of california Exactly. The uh, So Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings, the f- co-founding members of the band The Guess Who, are suing former bandmates Jim Cale and Gary Peterson for $20 million for giving the impression that the current iteration of the band is the original Guess Who. So... Bachman left the band in 1970. Burton Cummings left in 1975. That actually surprised me a little bit that it was so early. But the band continued to tour under the Guess Who name. And the current only remaining original band member is Gary Peterson, who was the drummer for the band. And they've used photos of the original lineup and continue to use recorded music of the original lineup. So in a press release, Bachman said... Anyone presenting and promoting themselves as the guests who are are clones who are ripping off our fans and tainting the legacy of the band. It's about time for the real story to come out. And he also called them a cover band. Oh, oh dear. So this, <laughs> so this kind of got me thinking, you know, bands change their members all the time. 
And I was sort of thinking about at what point can a band no longer really call itself by its original name? Ooh, ooh. Yeah, and, and, and is it about how many of the original members are still in the band? Or is it more about the status of, of those members? I, it, it, I, first of all, thank you for playing the game of where do you draw the line? Because that is one of my absolute favorite on-air games to play. Where do you draw the line? Oh my gosh, Laura, this is a complicated one because it not all band members are created equal. And when I think about the Guess Who, if I was buying a ticket that said the Guess Who on it and it wasn't Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings, I would feel a little bit ripped off. So I, 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 I know that it's a little bit complicated, but I would say like your lead singer probably has to be intact and probably your lead guitarist, if I really want, like, just like if it's a rock band, I kind of feel like that needs to be the core still in place, barring some exceptions. Like, I went to go see Sublime a couple of years ago with their new lead singer, Rome, and it was excellence. But they were very clear about what that was. On the bill, it said, Sublime with Rome. And everybody knows that Bradley Knowles has been dead since 1996, right? Like, there were no surprises here. But I would say you need to at least have have like the core of what made the band special and certainly in the case of the guess who that is Cummings and Burton uh, uh Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman yeah um I agree it's really complicated I'm not completely sure and I was thinking about the band Journey which famously replaced its lead singer about 20 years ago mm. but I, I think the fact that they were co-founders is pretty relevant for me, I think maybe it has to come down to that. I sort of had that thought as well that for better or worse, lead singers, lead guitar players tend to be integral to sort of the identity of a band. But I don't know if I want to go as far as to say that a band is no longer that band if your lead singer and or lead guitar player leaves. But maybe it's more about sort of, yeah, who founded the band, who's writing the music, who do fans perceive as sort of that personality as well. And and you and I talked recently about the Rolling Stones, who, of course, have you know, uh, the original gone drummer, through a lot Charlie of changes, Watts. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think most people would say, well, that's still, you know, again, you have the lead guitar player, lead singer, and you have that original sound. And maybe that's part of it as well. Maybe it has to do with the original sound that they're maintaining. But just like you, I would feel pretty ripped off if I got a ticket to go see the Guess Who and Cummings and Bachman were not yeah, Anastasia, Anastasia in the control room just got in my ear and talked about Queen, right? Queen very famously replaced Freddie Mercury. Uh, in Excess did the same thing, uh, replacing their lead singer. But again, I, I think if there's a certain transparency, I'm going to accept it a little bit more. And, and I, I wonder if maybe that's what's at, at the core of this lawsuit. If on the promotional poster, you're putting band members on the poster that aren't performing, or you're not being clear about the fact of who is performing, I understand why you might want to put quotation marks around the guess who. Yeah, it's such a good point. And Genesis was another example I was oh, thinking yeah. of, of course, replacing uh, Peter Gabriel with Phil Collins. But I think it is about the impression. And that was something that was mentioned in the lawsuit is this false impression uh, that fans are kind of going into it and not realizing that they're only seeing 
one of the original Guess Who members. Yeah. I do think that it also is relevant and important that fans are responsible for the choices they make. Like, you have to do a little bit of research as well on what you're actually buying. And if you want to say, okay, I'm a Guess Who fan, then maybe you need to know that the Guess Who is no longer together as an entity. It's the same thing with Sublime and Rome. If I, I knew Bradley was dead, yes, Rome was written on the ticket, but even then, if I was to buy a ticket for Sublime, I'm, I've probably got to do a little bit of research before I plop my hard-earned dollars down. Maybe I will give you that point, although I will say that bands do do reunion tours all the time, and actually <laughs> yeah. there was some controversy recently with Journey where they were looking at doing a reunion uh, tour and bringing back the original lead singer, but that didn't fly and there's uh, been a bit of a an argument about it so yeah maybe some onus is on the fans but i think a lot of people just aren't thinking about it and with the price of a lot of tickets oh these days you, you want know, people being happy <laughs> you know that's a topic that you and i need to explore at some point here in the next couple of weeks just like the cost of entertainment at this point because it has gotten out of control but for now laura we say goodbye have a lovely day talk to you tomorrow yeah, thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain at the AMI Entertainment Desk coming up after the break. A couple of stories in the regional news update, including one city being named the rattiest city in Canada. Not ratty based on the clothing they wear, not on the torn jeans that I wear on my lower half, but the actual critters scurrying around. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv with the audio streaming on the mighty digital airwaves of AMI Plus, amiplus.com. Don't forget, you've got a spell out plus. So if you ever are away from the, your television in the morning, but you still need your live hit of Now with Dave Brown and you don't like podcasts, amiplus.ca, that's the way to go. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming via audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, November the 1st, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Sony is introducing a new accessible controller for gamers with disabilities. Elizabeth Moeller has some details on that. I want to talk a little bit about Xbox's similar product, and then the two of us will collaborate in considering how the physical accessibility of gaming is just a piece of the puzzle. And a rural town in Saskatchewan is raising concerns about a, how do I want to put this? A conspiratorial cult that is settled in that neck of the woods? Journalist John Lepke will have more on the story of the Richmond cult. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in the prairies, Manitoba's finance minister is offering some insight on the new government's fiscal plans. Adrian Sala says the government is looking to suspend the 14 cent per litre gas tax. Sala is looking at a January 1st start date for that policy. 
In terms of the overall timeline, we've committed to a minimum of six months. And uh, I think from there, we're going to reassess depending on economic factors. Sala is also planning to maintain a 50% reduction in education property taxes enacted by the former progressive conservative government. Sala thinks that decision may also be temporary. At this point, we're committed to making sure Manitobans get those, uh, those savings and that we're going to maintain that 50% education property tax rate. We're not entertaining uh, looking at that or changing that at this point. And over to Ontario, pest control company Orkin has released a report about rat populations. Turns out Toronto has the most rats in the country. Don Kelly has the story. The pest control company based its rankings on the number of commercial and residential rodent treatment calls that it made between August of last year and this past July. Ooh. Vancouver came in second, followed by Burnaby and Kelowna, B.C. Mississauga, Ontario was fifth. Orkin says rodents start looking for warmth at this time of year, so it's a good idea to seal up cracks in walls and install weather stripping around windows and doors. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Or get a dog that specializes in ratting. A miniature schnauzer is a good option. And finally, in the Atlantic region, Health PEI, Prince Edward Island, says its emergency departments and hospitals are over capacity. The agency did not provide a reason for the system being strained. The agency says triage protocols are still being followed, but all patients can expect longer wait times kind of feel like this should be a bigger story, but it was just one little line in a press release this morning. So let's see if that one uh, bubbles up as the day moves along. Health PEI says its emergency departments and hospitals are over capacity. Keep an eye and ear on that one. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes John Lepke for a sports chat. John, this time of year is an exciting time for sports fans. It's a little something called the Sports Equinox. On Monday night, it was only the 20th time in the history of North American professional sports that all four major sports were in action. The World Series, Monday Night Football, NBA Basketball, and NHL Hockey. Throw in college football and Major League Soccer, as well as heavyweight boxing, mixed martial arts, tennis tournaments, golf. John, it's the sports equinox. I'm kind of curious how you manage your time around this time of year as someone who likes to dip his toe in the sports waters. Dip his toe or sort of cannonball into the water <laughs> of sports. Yes, um, we'll leave my ability to dive out of the conversation, I suppose. Um, what I do is I focus on the sport that I love the most, which admittedly is is basketball, and I click in and out with football. I am not uh, I am not Brock Richardson. I am not a massive baseball fan. I am capable of commenting on it, but it is not my top sport. And at one point, I just got burnt out on on hockey. So I very much, that is my third sport. I, yeah. I dip in and out there and get a little bit more focused on it as it gets to, uh, as as football dies down and, and hockey really starts to get exciting. Uh, I find it hard to get excited over, you know, how many 
how many shootout losses one team has <laughs> over another. Yeah, I, I, to me, there needs to be a little bit of stakes involved here to really garner my attention. So I think about something like the World Series, where I've been pretty locked into that. However, it's been really easy on Saturday night, as well as last night, to check out of the game fairly early, because uh, the Texas Rangers were up 10 nothing in the third inning last night, which meant I could go do anything else but watch baseball. So sometimes you got to be a little nimble on the switcher here to flip around and look for some different stuff to find your excitement but I think stakes and scarcity is the number one thing that gets my attention so the World Series is going to get my attention even Major League Soccer's uh, playoffs are going to get my attention because there's stakes involved winning and losing has serious consequences and then football is always going to get my attention because of scarcity you only really get 18 to 19 weeks a year of football so if you like it you better cherish it and hold on tight Baseball's got to be the only sport, by the way, and this isn't the, you know, John insults baseball hour, but <laughs> it's got to be the only sport where you can sort of, everybody understands when you clock out of one of the most important games of the year. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. That at a certain point, you say this run differential is too high. And to the Arizona Diamondbacks' credit, they did score a bunch of runs last night, but but the hill was was too steep to climb for them. And yeah, I was I was very happy to have uh, to have tuned away and ended up actually watching a little bit of Maple Leafs hockey, which as a uh, proud Montrealer, uh, you know, that kind of goes against my ethos. But it was on. It was easy to find. It was easy to hit play on. And there I found myself. There you go. My favorite Canadian meme of all time is the the one of the Toronto Maple Leafs or the uh, Tim Hortons roll up the rim to win, where it says, "You lost, but uh, don't feel bad. The the Leafs haven't won a cup since '67." <laughs> oh, no. oh no. Okay, now we're taking real trolling shots. But you mentioned <laughs> but you mentioned hockey loyalties here, John. Yeah. This came up a little bit on Monday after the big outdoor game in Edmonton between Calgary and Edmonton uh, with the Flames and the Oilers. And it got me thinking about hockey loyalties in the Prairies, but specifically in Saskatchewan, because you've got Edmonton and Calgary down the road in one direction. You've got Winnipeg down the road in another direction. You certainly have junior hockey and university hockey as well. But I need some insight from someone out there on the ground in Saskatoon. How are hockey loyalties determined in Saskatchewan? Yeah, I think when we look at, at the professional leagues, there it's it's fairly generational. Um, you know, it, you'll have some holdovers from the old Winnipeg team who who reasserted their uh, uh, their commitments once the um, once the Jets are back in town. Certainly, Edmonton and Calgary are are the sort of top ones. But if you look at some folks, maybe my my grandparents' age or even some folks my parents' age, it will be who they who they were listening to on the radio in their youth. So that would be uh, uh, Foster Hewitt in in Toronto. And whoever the the voice of the Canadians was, Danny Gallivan. Uh, at the time, Danny there you Gallivan. Go. You, you'd know better than me, there, Dave. But um, and then, really, the 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 big draw here, if we can call it that, um, is uh, is as you mentioned, junior hockey, uh, the WHL. Obviously, the Pats are coming off of a period of uh, excitement with Connor Bedard. We'll see how they they recover now that their team is slightly less exciting. Um, but you know the the blades and the pats and certainly uh, you know warriors and 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 raiders as well. Um, and yeah. then you you go down to the uh, the SJHL, which is our uh, 
uh, our junior. Oh, uh, oh man. Play. <laughs> now uh, really... You can get really, really nerdy is my point. Um, <laughs> but those are more for the, uh, the Yorktons of the world. My favorite thing about the SJHL is researching uh, sort of team names and why they exist. That's my particular type <laughs> of nerddom. Yeah. You know, that exists in every province, like the junior, junior hockey. And like, it's, it's a real deal. They have like radio broadcasts. They have like real deal uh, stuff going on. The Melville on. millionaires. The Melville millionaires. I'm okay. not sure how many millionaires live in Melville. <laughs> But well, there might be there. there might be potash. Uh, John, here's my <laughs> here's my last question. You got to be a little quick on this one, even though you're yeah. part of the next segment as well. So in theory, oh, you're right. on, you're only going to cannibalize your own time based on how you answer <laughs> this question. As part of the conversation of the outdoor hockey game, that I'm not necessarily getting sick of, so long as the NHL sort of says we're only going to do two, three, or four a year. I am beginning to wonder about fresh environments for some of these outdoor games. How would you evaluate the capacity of, say, Mosaic Field in Regina, where the Saskatchewan Rough Riders play to host an outdoor game? And if I put you in charge of putting together that Heritage Classic, which two Canadian teams would you pit against each other at Mosaic Field in Saskatchewan, if you accept my, 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 my premise of it being a reasonable place to hold an outdoor game? Oh, I'm always game for a hypothetical. Um, well, certainly Mosaic has a, uh, you know, an outdoor skating um, opportunity during during a few times during the winter. Uh, so I, I think it's perfectly capable as long as we don't have a repeat of uh, of Winnipeg and the NFL game. Uh, that was fairly dire. Oh dear. Uh, oh wait, John, let me stop so, you. Let, let me stop you. That was a big time turf issue. They had to cancel the game in the middle of the game because the turf got torn up and it wasn't safe for the players. That was for a preseason game a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I would assume that you know that we're, we have the kinks worked out in terms of hockey in, I would hope in this so. country. I would hope so. Uh, I think you know the the traditional answer perhaps would be something like Edmonton, Calgary, um, but I actually think that that Winnipeg, Calgary, or Winnipeg, Edmonton, or even you know a team that was less likely to come to the Prairies, um, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and then the Troll answer because the Blues there was there's a long standing you know rumor that's turned more into a joke about the Blues ending up in Saskatoon, which came fairly close <laughs> oh, on the scale of things to happening. Um, the meme answer, I guess, would be Winnipeg, St. Louis. You know, I didn't actually, uh, I, I know I limited you to Canadian teams in the question, but I actually think there could be a case made for bringing Minnesota, Chicago, or St. Louis up there, one of those traditional rivals of those central Canadian teams. Like, if you did Winnipeg and Chicago in Saskatchewan or Winnipeg and Minnesota in Saskatchewan, I think you might actually get a couple folks like who'd be into that one. Yep, uh, Minnesota, or as I called it when I was there, American Canada. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. On that note, that's a perfect spot to leave it. That's John Lepke at the AMI Sports Desk, but John's not going anywhere because coming up after the break, he's going to offer a little bit of insight on a rural town in Saskatchewan that's raising concerns about a conspiracy-oriented group who've uh, put some roots there. So John's going to talk more about the Richmond cult. And I think some terminology might get a little bit tricky here and the hate mail might come pouring in, but John will give you a little bit more insight on this one. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A rural town in Saskatchewan is raising concerns about a group of conspiracy theorists that have settled there. The town of Richmond has found itself home to what's being dubbed a QAnon cult. Leader Romana Dedulo has given herself the title of Queen of Canada. You can do that. My gosh, I'm going to call myself the king. Actually, I can't. That's King Charles. Her followers are under increasing pressure to leave the area. Journalist John Lepke has some more details on this story. Hey, John, hello once again. Hello once again. Uh, now for something completely different. That's now for case. something completely different. So what's the background here? How did this all come about? Yeah, so uh, I think it's important for a context that when we're talking about Richmond, Saskatchewan, uh, that, uh, you know, we're not talking about Richmond, British Columbia. We're talking about a village of 110 people at last count. Wow. Okay. Um, and Small. what's happened is, uh, yeah, uh, Romana DiGiulo has, um, who is famous in these right-wing conspiracy theory circles, um, connected with the trucker convoy, um, had an incident in Peterborough, Ontario, with some uh, protests against vaccines, has now um, is making her way through Saskatchewan and indeed making uh, threats against people who speak out. Uh, her group is currently holed up in a school in that small town, having um, previously come from Camsack, a nearby community of about uh, 2,000 people. What's the number of folks involved here? I know there's probably a bit of estimation. I'm sure there's some shrouding and secrecy going on, but but you're talking about a town of 110 people. What's the number of folks who are setting up shop there? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's difficult to tell, and, and realistically, you know, we have to go off of uh, reporting from some of the other outlets. Uh, usually, these are are small things, but they're certainly taking up. Uh, what is the former school in Richmond? Um, and uh, reporting from CBC uh, a few days ago, and indeed an investigation they did uh, mid-October, um, says that the group is is holding up, and and the the uh, the school doesn't have heating, according to the mayor. So um, they are they are preparing for winter by buying toques and gloves and and things like that. So they appear, at least at this stage, to be in it for the long haul. What are the concerns the community is raising here? What's what's at issue? Sure. So um, an important part of the story is that the group uh, is has sent emails and, and messages, um, including threatening public executions uh, of those who disavow the group and, and to cease and desist critiquing. Now, the mayor has come out and said uh, to some of us, we don't care. This is a bit empty air in terms of the threats against us. And then also saying, but rightfully so, community members are concerned. The person who owns the space where the um, protesters are uh, has been charged, uh, uh, according to both him and the RCMP, uh, with assault. He's due in court in mid-November. Um, and we have increasing concern about not uh, there was a protest. We just have increasing concern from the community side about how this could escalate and the ways that it is escalate. Because 
um, you know, the feeling is that it's very easy to switch from very violent rhetoric. Uh, public executions are not something you, you tend to uh, see as a, a mode of course, I guess you could say, um, that that rhetoric can very quickly switch to, uh, to violence. You mentioned one court date. What is the broader response from authorities, whether that be provincially, locally, et cetera? Sure. So uh, the RCMP, the, the the government of Saskatchewan has sort of deferred to the RCMP, uh, and they have set up a mobile or a temporary detachment. Um, you know, choice of Saskatchewan geography. Uh, the the detachments in the area are fairly small on the scale of thing. We are really talking about small town Saskatchewan here, um, and so. RCMP have said that they will continue to monitor, um, and if if the past is anything to go by, uh, with the fact that Ramona and her her group QAnon group have moved uh, significantly across the country in the last year and a half or so, um, I think the feeling is in some circles that uh, maybe with the protests that the community had and some of the public pressure that this will be moving on, just as she and the group moved on from from Camsac. John, let's uh, shift to something a little bit more broad in the province, and that's uh, contract negotiations for teachers in Saskatchewan. The Saskatchewan teachers are in the midst of a contract negotiation, and uh, things are not necessarily going to plan. A few days ago, the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation announced they had a mandate for uh, sanctions from their membership. How did the Federation get here? Absolutely. So the... The agreement, uh, the the last agreement that was put in place, uh, expired in August. Um, as you mentioned, that there was a vote uh, last week. Uh, Ninety percent of teachers voted, which is a fairly high turnout, uh, and ninety five percent voted in favor of giving uh, the uh, the leadership committee a uh, uh, the right to sanction in in their name. Now, what those sanctions will look like. Uh, is is yet to be seen. Uh, the last time we saw sanctions from the South Teachers Federation, which is the uh, the only union we, we don't split between the uh, the age groups like some other provinces do, um, it was a work to rule mandate. The last time there was a strike uh, was in two thousand and eleven. Uh, but right now we're at the nobody wants to talk, nobody wants to agree on anything stage of mm. uh, of union negotiations. John, uh, typically, whenever I ask this question, the answer ends up being money. But but what is that issue in the negotiation? Sure. So the STF have labeled nine areas. Uh, they've argued, uh, and it's certainly been reported out, that the only thing the government is willing to come to the table on is money, uh, albeit minimally. Um, some of the concerns of the SCF and what the leadership have brought forward and, and teachers is um, things like a lack of supports for uh, EAL, English as an additional language learners, um, speech and language uh, for, for students with disabilities, um, money as usual uh, supports, and things like class sizes and, um, and bringing, interestingly, bringing uh, in our province um, uh, substitute teachers are are not uh, as defined in the union agreement, so so they want to bring them in as well. But as I said, nine areas, and and thus far the government says 
that they are only willing to talk about one. The government in, in hand, when talking about these other areas like classroom uh, complexity uh, being the word of the day, um, is that uh, that is a school board concern rather than a teacher concern. It is the argument that it's not a labor concern, um, which obviously the STF doesn't agree with. It, it turns into a jurisdictional wrangling, right? When one level kicks down to another and says, no, no, that's local school boards. And then teachers will say, well, yeah, but you need to give the local school boards the resources for us to actually deal with these quote, and I'm throwing the big air quotes up here with my fingers, the complexities. Yes, uh, you know, chicken, meat, egg, in a way. And um, I think there's an argument to be made within, within the sort of ecology of teachers in this province that, I think the government feels they ha can ha exert more control over the school boards, um, partially because school boards are elected, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. um, then they can, uh, uh, a fairly strong union, um, we've seen more protests than uh, or rallies, there were some mini rallies this weekend around the province, there's certainly been some rallying around the previous provincial election. It has not just been a um, a discussion of, oh, our agreement fell apart or, or is not renewed, um, but it has become uh, a wider issue, partially because another thing that I was talking about when I when I come on previously, pronoun policy has really put this in the public eye, uh, as has the role of teachers over the course of COVID. Yeah, no doubt about that one. John, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. Thanks very much. That's John Lepke, a journalist based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break, Sony is introducing a new accessible controller for gamers with disabilities. Elizabeth Moeller has some details on that one. I've got some details on a similar product that Xbox has had on the market for a couple of years through Microsoft. And then there's a bigger conversation about accessibility in gaming and what gaming means beyond just sort of physical button mashing. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Sony is trying to improve the accessibility experience of playing video games. They are introducing an updated accessible controller for gamers with disabilities. The controller has Elizabeth Moeller's attention. Elizabeth, hello again. Hello again, Dave. Let's play. Let's play indeed. So Elizabeth, what features from this particular controller caught your attention? Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting that the creators of this controller really wanted it to be universally accessible to people with a wide variety of disabilities. So sometimes we get technology and it's like, that's great for people that can see, but it might not work well for people um, who can't see or people that have physical disabilities um, versus people that that have um, that don't. And so I think one of the things that really impressed me was its, it's you know, universality. Um, and it's it's got a really highly customable plate customizable play experience. Um, so you can have it sort of sitting. Um, you don't need to hold it, which is great for people that might need to put it on like a, a wheelchair tray table or put it sort of on a, on a tabletop just in general. It's really neat. You can perform the north orientation on those the analog sticks of the control to, to suit sort of what you need as a player. 
And you can also do um, switching in and out of buttons. So if certain but buttons are harder to press, you can switch those in and out to make the experience a little bit easier for you, depending on your dexterity levels, which is really great. Um, really cool, you can actually store your um, programmed button settings as profiles. So you're not having to, I don't know about you, but it's really annoying when you get a controller and every time you have to program it. You oh, have to yeah. think, okay, what, you know, what did I do last time? Was it this or was it this? And then you're like, okay, did I have, did I have this setting or this setting? So this is a really nice feature um, for people like me that have sort of remote phobia or control phobia, I guess you could say. <laughs> But one other thing I really want to point out is that it works with other devices, right? So as people with disabilities, we're often using multiple devices and it looks cool. Like it, it I've, I've, I know there'll be some pictures coming up, but it doesn't look like sort of a very medical hospital-like device. And again, often as people with disabilities, our devices kind of can make us look a bit like cyborgs, which I'm all for, but I really liked that about this device. Yeah, what's really neat about this one, the pictures up on the screen right now, is you really identified that customization in terms of the flat surface and the switching in and out of individual buttons to customize it to your needs. And Sony's not the only major video gaming company that's doing this. Uh, Xbox and Microsoft also put out yeah. something called the Adaptability Controller a couple of years ago that also has some of that customization. Not as much customization in terms of the switching in and out of buttons, but still utilizing a flat surface, using a board, and then being able to do some of that individual mapping of what buttons are going to do for you. And again, these are small steps towards different yes. major video game companies moving towards a more inclusive inclusive environment, but to your mind, how does a controller like this or the Xbox adaptive controller end up being more than just a physical accessibility advancement? Yeah, it's it's way more. I think for me, when I when I look at something like this and I look at other accessible gaming consoles and other accessible gaming options, I think about inclusion and social social participation. Yeah. So I um you're you're gonna learn something about me. I'm a little bit of a nerd, and about four years ago, uh maybe five, I joined a group that does gaming on Saturday nights. So sometimes we do like tabletop role playing, which is you know, game gaming with dice, but sometimes and certainly during the pandemic, we did this this kind of gaming. And what it really meant for me was a place I could go and the disability wasn't the forerunner. It wasn't the thing that people saw or needed to adapt or needed to think about. We were all playing this game together. We were all working as a team. We were laughing, um, sometimes arguing about who's going to get the bad guy. But the point is it, it really built community. And I, I want to just kind of take this a step further because I think sometimes there's discourse about the harms in video games. And I, I'm not denying that that can happen, but I think especially for folks like myself and others who sometimes struggle to find activities where frankly, we can participate at the same level, this is a this is a game changer, and I realized the pun after it came out of my mouth. But it's <laughs> it really for me is about um, building community, but also building skills. So you know you're learning about teamwork and problem solving, and you know for younger ones about turn taking. So this really to me is about uh, a way where people can come together over a common love of something, right? And who doesn't want to do that? 
What games have jumped out to you? Like, what's appealed to you? I'm a little bit more of a sports gamer on my end. I like creating these little sports universes and just looking mm. for some escapism. Race cars? Cause, because a uh, little bit of race cars, but but okay. I definitely but I definitely prefer things like uh, boxing, football, uh, basketball, nice. hockey, and a lot of like the franchise mode kind of stuff, yeah. career yeah. mode kind of stuff. So sometimes yeah. it doesn't even necessarily involve playing the game. There's sort of this intellectual and strategic escape that I like. I like creating my own little universe. And to me, Elizabeth, you're talking about the social inclusion side, and I'm, like, big time into that. But I also think about individual escapism. Uh, yeah. I've, I've been talking to people about, about what I do to decompress or unplug, mm -hmm. and I have found these little spaces in video games that I'm doing something that is mentally stimulating but also fairly unconscious. And, and the, to yeah. me, like, there's a huge benefit in doing that in these franchise modes or career modes that just let me walk away from the real world for 30 minutes, an hour, maybe 90 minutes. Or on Saturday, I might have dived a little deeper uh, than usual okay. into, telling, into, into my binge. But, but what are some of the games that ended up drawing your attention? You know, it's interesting. This is a question I was thinking about because what's drawn my attention has changed as my vision has changed. Mm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself. You might remember Duck Hunt. Of course. That was the first, okay, right? Um, and and you know, they had the music and the little like pointy gun that you would you would shoot the ducks at the screen, so a little violent, but that was one I could play when I had more sight. Um, and then I moved into everybody was doing the dance dance revolution with the mats and <laughs> about you but that just as a blind person who no longer can see colors by the time somebody describes where to go I'm already on top of somebody so <laughs> that was fun for a time um, and then the sort of the karaoke uh, video games that came out in sort of the 2009s but now it's more about um, strategy like you say and words so I've discovered one I love called Tales from the Loop so think kind of stranger things but um, you know for video game and also for tabletop playing basically late 80s bunch of kids 10 to 15 years old discover these creatures that live in a loop under their town and although the, the children aren't in grave danger they are in danger so mm. you're kind of you're working as a team to sort of bring um these creatures to some sort of rest um i also love monster hearts your professor is a werewolf so that can be fun and sometimes <laughs> maybe a little close to home i don't know um but my my gaming has changed as my disability has changed and i think that's a really interesting thing to sort of reflect on because um, we still have a long way to go and I would I would ask you have you had that experience have you sort of changed as as um, either time's gone on or games have become more or less accessible so because my vision has been relatively stable my entire life sort of sitting in that eight to ten percent uh, range depending on the day the lighting and my glasses <laughs> uh, I haven't I've not I, I've not like my, my personal tastes have not changed a ton but my observation of the industry has changed a ton mm -hmm. because there's a bit of backing and forth in there's some progress and there's some regress and I, I said some positive things about some EA sports games that I like to play uh, earlier in this segment like their NHL franchise their FIFA franchise their boxing franchise really liked these games but Elizabeth, it can end up being a little bit of a crapshoot on the progress they make yes. and then take away on their accessibility front. Mm -hmm. That maybe for a year or two, they're doing a really nice job with big fonts on screen with all the text, and they're doing a great job with color contrast and even allowing you as a gamer to go in and do a little bit of customization so that you yeah. can make the software meet your needs or meet your preferences, I should say. Maybe needs might be a little bit too far on that front. 
sense. But then after a couple of years, some designer comes in and says, oh, this is too clunky. We've got to go do something yes. else. So what I'm observing here is a little bit of progress and a little bit of regress. And yeah. what it's going to take is a consistent standardized effort where you start thinking about the physical, so that's the adaptive controllers that you've got here that you talked about that you've identified. That's going to involve the operating systems of the of the systems themselves that allow you to save profiles and do some of those components. That's so there's a continuity. And then number three is the game development itself that continues to follow the model of building in as many accessibility features or customization features as you can without backtracking too much on best practices. Because you need all of these things working together in a continuity or else you're just never going to build the requisite momentum. Yeah, it's really disappointing when, you know, a game changes or an update happens and you can't play it. That's actually happened in our group and we've had to, I won't use the word pivot, we've had to adapt. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting to think about is like um, accessibility for sort of multi-disability, right? So not just a person with multiple disabilities, but people with different disabilities playing yeah, together. So I alluded yeah. to this at the beginning, right? Like you and I have different levels of vision, right? So maybe you need color contrast, but I need speech. So what I really want to see is more work around, okay, so a bunch of us with different abilities are playing together and what does that look like so that everybody can actually play and somebody's not going, I can't see this or this doesn't work, that the flashing lights are really harming my eyes. Yeah. So that's, that's what I want to see as a next step. I, I think it also needs to be really clear that a lot of the AAA or big releases are going yes. to have to put this effort together because if you're really talking about that social inclusion fabric that you're referring to and that I totally agree with, people don't want to go play the really crappy game together just because it has accessibility features. Yeah, yeah. They want to play the good stuff too. And that's where maybe folks like uh, The Last of Us Part Two, that's uh, Naughty Dog, uh, that, that video game production company, has sort of put that effort in on the front end to say, we want to build as many features as we can in here. And again, it's not perfect. There are still moments yeah. where, where, where the game is not accessible, but they're trying their best to sort of say, we are a AAA game, we're one of the best out there on the market, and we're we're going to try to get as many people into our tent as possible. And ultimately, when you're talking about games that cost $75 or $100, you know, you don't want to uh, roll the dice with that, right? I'm not going to buy a new hockey game for a while because the last time I did, I rolled the dice and all of a sudden it was $40 out of my bank account that I'm not going to get back. Yeah, and I mean, that is something to note, just the cost of this remote is, is $90. Yeah, but 100 bucks, um, yeah. You know, but 100 bucks. Yeah, so something something to think about for sure. And, and you know, I think just beyond disability, like there's so many benefits to other other populations, certainly older adults, um, you know, in terms of uh, getting, you know, keeping up skills, um, but also just with um, the ability to, to have some, um, you know, physical activity that doesn't require maybe going outside in the winter, because some of these games can be pretty active. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there, there's really cool, like I always say this, right? Like it, it's beyond just disability. These accessibility things are going to benefit everybody in a really meaningful way. Um, and I think it's exciting to sort of see where this discourse goes around, like how can gaming actually be used to help um, and shifting that conversation? Yeah, big shout out to my buddy, Ben. We, we like to play over Xbox Live, Hi, a little bit of golf or a little bit of hockey. And uh, it's super fun. It's super easy to be social. And it's like two clicks of a button and away you go. So uh, very good times. Elizabeth, thank you for this. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. I will talk to you tomorrow. That is Elizabeth Moeller coming up after the break. Ramya Amuthan stops by with a preview of what's coming up on Kelly and Company today. Not Kelly and Company, Kelly and Ramya. 
Get it right, Dave. That's 2 p.m. Eastern time. But Ramya wears plenty of hats around this corporation, including the AMI audiobook review. I was recently featured on an episode. So Ramya and I will talk about that and a little bit about audiobooks more generally. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Kelly and Ramya are hitting the airwaves 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and can give you a sneak peek on what's hitting the airwaves in a couple of hours. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. We have a nice lineup today on a Wednesday. We're talking, um, number one, about Matthew Perry, the late uh, Matthew Perry, who passed away on Saturday. Uh, it is our TV talk with Greg David, and he wants to talk about the history of Friends, uh, Matthew Perry, and I'm sure his memoir will come up as well because it was less than a year uh, mm-hmm. since the release of mm-hmm. his memoir when he passed away. Also, we're talking about savings plans. If you're thinking about saving money, where oh, do you man. get started? <laughs> Sensitive subject, I know. And uh, how do you maintain your good saving habits? That's the conversation with Ryan Chin, our financial advisor. And Derek Wood from Robert Half is talking about their latest research, uh, talking about etiquette in the office. Oh, Oh dear. Okay, is that is, yeah. is that is that directly uh, centered at me, Ramya? Did I do something that we need particular <laughs> I consulting know. on? I, but I if did... there's a checklist, <laughs> we'll both go through it. I, I did borrow uh, some of your hair gel this morning because my hair was out of control. Did so I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know if that. I don't know if that counts as a big time office <laughs> faux pas. But I went into your box of goodies and uh, found your hair gel. It's basically your hair gel now because I haven't even used it yet. Oh, so I'll okay. be borrowing ah, your hair ah, gel. Ah, 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 well, I'm maybe going to get a haircut here eventually. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll get there. Uh, Robbie, you mentioned memoirs. Uh, interesting you mentioned that because you are a bookworm. You're one of the hosts of the AMI Audio Book Review. You had a special guest uh, last week with myself stopping by to talk about Success by Martin Amos with uh, yourself, myself, and Jacob Shemansky, which was an awesome conversation mm-hmm. our old boss andy frank uh, sent quite the backhanded compliment and said not a boring episode of the audio AMI audio book review so I, I i felt pretty good about that but then i thought about it and i was like oh andy that's uh, you know a little backhanded there what, what does that imply said that it may be boring and then he's like it wasn't boring so anyway oh, we're okay to listen ah. word by word let's check the transcripts ah, okay we'll put that on at 1.5 but ramya <laughs> you are an avid reader like you are just a consumer of books so what do you have on the agenda here what's on your what's on your cue of uh, what's going into your ears uh, audiobook wise uh, well, right now I am going through back-to-back memoirs. Um, this week we're going to be reviewing Britney Spears's memoir. It's called The Woman in Me. Uh, very fast read, Dave. I got through this in like a day and a half. Wow. So under six wow. hours. Yeah, normal you, speed. You know, Laura Bain said the exact same thing when she did a little bit of a review on it last week. She said she just blew right through it. Yep, 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 exactly. And it's... Uh, 
I'd say the book is a tell-all. Like, it's what we expect it to be, right? We haven't, we've heard bits and pieces of Britney's life, her story, the things that have made all kinds of tabloids and headlines. Um, so hearing it from her is, I think, a perspective we've all been waiting on, especially because of how long she'd been, mm. as she says, silenced uh, from her conservatorship. And I'd say that, yeah, it it gives you what you want from Britney. Whatever you have, you know, waited for, the tea, the gossip, the, the ins and outs of what's been going on. I think the conversation, uh, when we have it on AMI Audiobook Review later with myself, Jacob, and our friends from Sila, Teresa and Karen, uh, I think the conversation will be more around challenging our own perspectives and, I guess, judgment around what we followed with Britney. Yeah. Uh, because I think that nobody's coming into the story of Britney like with a clean slate, right? None of us are saying, oh, I have no idea what oh, Britney's been so up many, to. So many preconceived notions. Exactly. Exactly. So when we have the conversation, I'm very curious around the table about how we took this book away simply because of where we came at it from before book yeah. and after book. I, I should have asked Laura this last week when she was talking about it, but uh, did Brittany narrate the audiobook or was it somebody else? No. It was Michelle Williams who narrated the audiobook. We did get an author's note at the beginning that was from Brittany's voice, but the rest of it wasn't. And she actually. Um, talked candidly about that in the author's note that she will not be narrating this audiobook and that because she had a lot of challenges writing it to begin with as she wasn't in an emotional place to narrate it herself mm. Ramya, there's only about a minute left here on the clock but i'm curious about what you look for in an audiobook like do you ever start an audiobook and then you just dislike the voice and you're like that's it for me Oh, yeah, absolutely. And unlike a lot of the guests and contributors we have on Audiobook Review, I am not a completionist. So I do have <laughs> several titles in my Audible. Like, this is money, you know, I've paid for it that I can't go through because because the narrator's not uh, hitting the spot for me or the pacing in, of the narrator. Like, I'll fiddle with the speed and all this stuff. Um, but truly, yeah, there are books that I've just picked up and, and can't go through it. I think I will. I'll save it. I'll say next month I'll be in the mood for this, and I'm not. You know, books are a big commitment time-wise, right? Even when you say, oh, I got through Britney real fast, that was still six, seven hours of your life uh, via listening to audiobook. And yes, it exists all across entertainment, but how are you curating what you're actually going to listen to? Most of and uh, what I listen to is recommendation um okay there's very few uh, like uh, matthew perry for example I'll, I'll bring that up again i picked up his memoir because i'm a super fan but not because and not because it was you know getting uh, the attention it was or not because somebody right. personally recommended it to me but that's rare most of the time it's if a friend says you got to read this and they say it in a way like dave i picked up books just because you've mentioned it on the show here right yeah uh, that's like true variable Lightness, I can't remember. Unbearable lightness of being. Yeah. There one, you go. Of, one of the one of the most yeah. important. I heard you talking about yeah. it. And one I was of... like, that sounds amazing. Well, see, there it is. Even even I have influence, which is uh <laughs> scary to think. Ramya, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan, the host of AMI Audio Book Review and the co-host of Kelly and Ramya. I'm the host of Now with Dave Brown ironically enough, named Dave Brown. That's how they hired me. The show comes back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, 
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Marjorie Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.